Amen. Stronger than darkness and new every morning, yeah? Yeah, His mercy is more. If you've got a Bible, open it up to Hebrews chapter 3. We're going to be in verses 1 through 6 while you do that. Uh, if you ran yesterday a half marathon, a marathon with Team World Vision, I, I want to say congratulations on finishing. I see some medals out there. Uh, I also just want to say thank you on behalf of uh, individuals that you will never meet who you've provided water for uh, for a lifetime. That makes... Uh, not just a lifetime of difference, but World Vision goes into those communities and is able to make physical impact while they also share the truth of the gospel. And so uh, thank you for those who took part in that, whether running or if you gave to someone who was. Um, I hope that as a congregation, that's something that uh, we're able to celebrate. Those who moved their feet, uh, possibly for longer distances than they've ever had, but then also for the money raised that's going to make impact uh, in Africa and in other places around the world. Uh, I got a coupon in the mail on, I think it was Wednesday, it might have been Tuesday, but I've never seen something like this before. It was for $20 off a new car. <laughs> I, am in, I am being entirely serious. That $20 was not enough to like push me over the edge on whether or not the Fritzen family needed a new vehicle, but I stood there in my driveway and I was looking at it and I was kind of confused, like, is this real? I'm like, is this... Does someone get this coupon and think, now's the moment? <laughs> I wasn't sure if we could handle a new car, but this $20 off, it seemed like, who, you know, I, I won't name any names, but it seemed like whoever put that together kind of misunderstood marketing a little bit. Like, they just missed the strategy. Marketing, right, the goal is convince you that you have a need, that maybe you didn't know that you had this need, or... You didn't recognize it. And then step two, convince you that their product is the thing that will meet that need. And sometimes we all fall victim to that. I think maybe in the technological world, more so than any other place, this is the entire strategy, right? Ten years ago, nobody thought, you know what I need in my house? It's like a little device where I could just say up into the sky, what's the weather today? And it would tell me 62 degrees with a chance of rain. But Google Home and Amazon's Alexa put out this little product that you can put there in your house, and all of a sudden, like, a bunch of particularly suburban places are like, I, I absolutely need that. I don't ever want to have to flip a light switch again in my life. Alexa, turn off the lights, and then they're just gone. We had no idea we needed that. Someone made a thing, said, you absolutely need that, and then a bunch of us bought them. I'm not, I'm, I'm neither for nor against those things. But that's how marketing works. Convince you you have a need. Convince you that this thing is the means to meet that need and then get you to buy it. In reality, we have two very deep, eternal spiritual needs in life. Every single one of us have those same needs. Those two needs are where I want to start this morning. And then the rest of our time working through this first six verses of Hebrews chapter 3 are, is going to just move in twos. Two needs, two identifiers of who we are as the church, two mediators, Moses compared to Jesus, and then two exhortations or encouragements. And so let's pray and then we'll read these verses together. God, thank you for this morning. God, thank you for Jesus, that his mercy is more. God, that even though we stood under the weight of a debt that we could not afford, 
Our sins, they are many, but His mercy is more. God, thank You that He identifies with us. Having been fully man, fully human, He understands our suffering and our temptation. He understands the difficulties of life in a broken world and He moves towards us in those. God, thank You that You've revealed Him in Your Word. And God, we can know who Jesus is and know that He is the only sufficient Savior. God, I pray this morning that we would see Him clearly. God, by Your Spirit, would You illuminate the truth of Jesus Christ to our hearts clearly and directly, Lord? Would You encourage us and challenge us, Lord? Would You impress upon us the truth of the encouragement in Hebrews 3, verse 1, to consider Jesus, Lord? And would that be sort of the operating uh, system that runs in our lives at all times, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Two needs. That's where I want to start. And this is going to kind of serve as the means by which we recap Hebrews chapter 1 and Hebrews chapter 2. Our first and most important need is that we need a way to God. Every human being that's ever lived, every human being that will ever live has this need. We're alienated from God as a result of our sinful condition. And we need a remedy for that alienation, for that separation. That's the greatest need that any one of us has. That need is spiritual, not physical. That need is eternal. It's not temporal. And that means that the solution or the remedy to that need needs to be something that is eternal and spiritual, not something that's temporal and physical. We need a word from God. That's the second thing. We need that word because that's primarily how we understand that we need a way to God. You see, if we were left to our own devices and God never broke in and said to us, you have this desperate need, we would all continue along our merry way right into eternal separation from the Lord. So we have this need for a way to God, but we also need a word from God that would tell us about that need. And that word would also be the means by which we see that that need for a way to God has been provided for. And without those two things, we would all be in a world of spiritual hurt. My aim here is not to market something. Right? It's not to say, let me tell you about this need so that then I can provide you with the thing that meets your need. My aim here is to define reality. The first two chapters of Hebrews have laid out for us the answer to both of those needs. Hebrews chapter 1 and chapter 2 have shown us that Jesus is the way to God and that Jesus is our word from God. Let me just walk through it. Our way to God is through Jesus. He's the means to this great salvation, Hebrews 2 verse 3. He's the one who has atoned for our sins, Hebrews 2.17. He's the only one who is sufficient to meet that eternal and spiritual need because he's truly God, that's Hebrews chapter 1, but he's also truly man. That was laid out clearly in Hebrews chapter 2. In that dichotomy, that Jesus could be fully God and fully man, truly God and truly man, is something that even if we've walked with Jesus for a very long time, can be hard for us to comprehend. And I've been trying to come up with a good way to illustrate that, just to bring some depth to it. And so I'm going to give you the best thing that I got, but don't push the analogy too far because inevitably it would break down somewhere. I am truly a son to Rod and Debbie Fritzen. I'm also truly a brother to Sarah Fritzen. 
and truly a husband to Melody Fritzen. And being any one of those three does not negate any one of the others. In a similar way, it's not a perfect analogy, but in a similar way, Jesus is truly God and truly man. And being truly God does not negate the fact that he's truly man, and being truly man does not negate the fact that he's truly God. Both of them exist perfectly and entirely inside this God-man, Jesus Christ. He's the one through whom or to whom all things will be subjected, Hebrews 2.8. He's the one that's broken the power of death, Hebrews 2, 14 and 15. He's the one who suffered in order to secure our salvation for us, Hebrews 2, 10. He's our way to God. He's also our word from God. Hebrews 1, 2 says that he's the culmination of God's revelation. Hebrews 2, 1 says that he is the one to whom we must pay attention. He's the one that we cannot neglect without eternal consequence. That's Hebrews 2.3. He's the one who will speak on our behalf, declaring us as the children that belong to him. Hebrews 2.13. He's the one who sits right now at the right hand of the Father and speaks to intercede on our behalf. Hebrews 1 verse 3. Our two great spiritual eternal needs satisfied in Jesus. Nothing else can provide for those two needs. You could wrap up the book of Hebrews right here in our heart's could find all that they need in order to be eternally satisfied and eternally content in Jesus Christ. But the author doesn't stop there. Because he wants to continue to show just how superior Jesus is to all other things. So let me read this passage again. Therefore, that's in relation to Hebrews 1 and Hebrews 2. Therefore, because we've got this amazing Savior who is God Himself, because we have this amazing Savior who is truly human, holy brothers and sisters who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. He was faithful to the one who appointed Him, just as Moses was in all God's household. For Jesus is considered worthy of more glory than Moses, just as the builder has more honor than the house. Now every house is built by someone, But the one who built everything is God. Moses was faithful as a servant in all God's household, as a testimony to what would be said in the future. But Christ was faithful as a son over his household. And we are that household if we hold to our confidence in the hope in which we boast. Two needs met in Jesus. And now in this passage, we get two identifiers about who we are as the church. In fact, they come right in the first verse. Therefore, Holy brothers and sisters, that's the first one. We are a holy family. I cannot stress enough just how important that reality is to the author of Hebrews. In fact, this is the sixth time in the book of Hebrews thus far that the author has used familial identifiers, brothers and sisters, children, sons and daughters. Six times already. Why is that so important to the author of Hebrews? Think back to who this letter, this sermon was delivered to. It was given to a house church, Hebrew Christians, who were facing intense persecution to walk away from their faith. Many of them may have left their biological family when they professed faith in Jesus. To have made a claim to believe that Jesus Christ is Savior may have caused them to be ostracized from their family, their biological family. That's a reality for believers all over the world today. That profession that Christ is Lord would cause you to be separated from your biological family. And the author of Hebrews wants his readers to understand 
you're not alone. You're not alone. You're alongside other believers who are more than mere acquaintances that you share a room with on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m., soon to be 9.45. Those people that surround you ought to be more than folks you see just once a week. They are holy family. And what unites you to them is not just the flesh and blood that you share, but the blood of Jesus Christ that has washed you clean. You became a new creation in Christ, and with it came this new family. And that family is united together by something that's stronger than even death. It's united by Jesus Christ. And, to go back up to Hebrews chapter 2, Jesus calls you, brothers and sisters. You got this new life in Christ. You not only got this flesh and blood family that surrounds you now as brothers and sisters in Christ, you also got Jesus as a brother. It goes even one step further. Jump down to verse 6. There's this illustration that we'll get to in a minute about the household of God. And then the author wraps up this paragraph by saying, we are that household if we hold on to our confidence in the hope in which we boast. We're the literal household of God. Those who've placed their faith in Jesus are the house over which Christ rules. So not only do we have these familial bonds, thanks to the blood of Jesus Christ on our behalf. We also have Jesus as our brother who knows what it is to suffer and is merciful toward us. And we've also got Jesus as the Lord over this house. Holy family. That's identifier number one. Number two is that we share a heavenly future. Therefore, holy brothers and sisters, you who share a heavenly calling, What is that heavenly calling? That calling is glory. Jesus is taking us with him to glory. If you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you've had your sin forgiven by the grace of God through faith in him, then that is your ultimate destination. And nothing can take it away from you. He suffered and died in order to make it possible. He's the one who created and sustains all things, and yet he was willing and even joyful to take our sin upon himself that he might take us with him to glory. We share that heavenly future with one another. We'll join Jesus there. He'll be unashamed to call us brothers and sisters while we stand with him in glory, Hebrews 2.11. He'll identify himself with us there, Hebrews 2.13. He'll help us navigate this broken world while we're on our way to glory, Hebrews 2.18. And why does that encouragement matter? Again, it's a persecuted, struggling church, and there's a subtle reminder tucked into the middle of this paragraph. That the end destination is worth the road that will get us there. That same encouragement holds true today. Brothers and sisters, the end destination. There with Jesus in glory, praising God in the assembly of a holy family from every tribe, nation, and tongue. That destination is worth the road that gets us there. Everybody's earthly road to that place is going to look a little bit different. The sufferings will look different. The bumps will look different. The turns will look a little bit different. But the road is worth the end destination. When I was 
young, our family would drive most everywhere on vacation. We didn't really fly a lot. And so sometimes that meant, you know, loading up the family minivan and driving for like 19 or 20 hours in order to get to our destination. And I can only, you know, try to imagine what it was like to be my parents in that uh, situation. We've been in the car for 15 minutes. Nine-year-old Tim has been told multiple times that it's a long drive. And I just need to know if we're close yet. (laughs) Nope, not yet. We stopped for a bathroom break, which in the Fritzen family meant you also got food and you also got gas and you weren't stopping again until all three of those things needed to happen at the same time. And mom looks at me and says, Tim, do you need to go to the bathroom? And I say no. And seven minutes later, I need to go to the bathroom. Can we stop? And my parents are dealing with that all the way to whatever our destination is, along with just the traffic and the stress of driving for a long time. And sometimes it involved, you know, a night in a hotel midway. Sometimes we would drive like all the way through the night or whatever the case might be. And then we finally arrive at the destination. And I think my parents must have thought to themselves, please just run along, children. (laughs) We've made it to vacation. But what I actually think happened is that we arrived in whatever our destination was and my parents saw the joy on my sister's face and on my face as we took in whatever the vacation was and they thought to themselves, totally worth it. All the drive, all the annoyances, all the difficulty, totally worth it. That's the author of Hebrews' encouragement the end destination, the glory that we're being taken to, this heavenly calling is absolutely worth it. Hold strong, church. Two identifiers. We are holy brothers and sisters. We're not alone in the middle of this struggle and the final destination of glory is worth the road that we walk in order to get there. And then the middle of the paragraph lays out two mediators. This is kind of the the meat of the paragraph. One mediator is Moses, who is a servant. The second mediator is Jesus, who is the son. Hebrews 2.17 told us that Jesus is a merciful and high priest, merciful and faithful high priest in matters pertaining to God. The rest of the book of Hebrews is going to explain what it means that Jesus is this faithful high priest. But before the Israelites had priests, they had Moses. So the author of Hebrews starts there. How is Jesus greater than than Moses. So verses 2 through really the mid part of 6 are explaining, offering this comparison contrast, similar to the way the author of Hebrews gave a comparison and contrast between Jesus and angels in chapter 1. Now there's a comparison and a contrast between Jesus and Moses in chapter 3. Moses is heralded as one of the greatest Israelites of Old Testament history. To be a faithful Jewish individual was to revere Moses for his faithfulness. And the author of Hebrews pauses here to say Jesus is even greater than him. The author starts with a comparison. Verse 2. He was faithful to the one who appointed him, that's Jesus, just as Moses was in all God's household. Both were faithful. That's the comparison point. The goal was not to say that Moses needs to be diminished. The goal was not to say that Moses was somehow lesser than he actually was. And so the author offers this kind of reassuring parallel. Both of them were faithful. 
Both are apostles. That just means sent one. Moses goes out to the burning bush. God speaks to him and says, you are to go and deliver my people. He's sent on this task. Moses is a mediator. A mediator is someone who brings two sides together, two sides that are separate. A mediator stands in the middle and pulls them together. Moses goes up on the mountain. He receives the law from God. He comes down to the Israelite people and he says, this is how we relate to a holy and righteous God. He mediates for them. And he's this high priest, represents the people of God to God through these sacrifices, and he was faithful to that task. A servant, we're told. If you look down in verse 5, Moses was faithful as a servant in all God's household. That word servant is different than in other New Testament places where we see the word servant sometimes translated as slave. It's a different Greek word that means more like an aid. So think the difference between a restaurant uh, waiter or waitress and the maitre d' at the restaurant who's kind of overseas and is, has a lot of responsibilities and is ultimately responsible for making sure the restaurant runs smoothly and serves people well, but is greater than a waiter. That's Moses. He's this faithful servant in God's house. But his faithfulness points beyond himself. Moses was faithful as a servant in all God's household as a testimony to what would be said in the future. Moses didn't know it, but he was foreshadowing something greater than him. And that greater thing is Jesus Christ, who is faithful over God's house. You see, they're of entirely different categories. Jesus is sent from heaven to humanity. Jesus is a mediator who brings two sides together, but he does it by his own death on the cross. Jesus is a high priest, but he doesn't need to find another sacrifice. He is the sacrifice. His category is entirely different. Verse 6, Christ was faithful as a son over God's household. He's not part of the house. He's Lord over the house. He's the one who fulfilled what Moses foreshadowed. And in the middle there, verses 3 and 4, there's this illustration about a builder. For Jesus is considered worthy of more glory than Moses, just as the builder has more honor than the house. Now every house is built by someone, but the one who built everything is God. A builder is worthy of more honor than a house. A painter is worthy of more honor than the painting. An author is worthy of more honor than the book or the article. Jesus is an entirely different category. Moses was a block in God's house, and as a block, he played that role faithfully, but Jesus built the house. That's the implication. Jesus created the house that Moses is a part of, and for that reason, obviously, he's worthy of more honor and more glory than Moses. Why this statement? I want to offer a historical reason and then one for us today. It's likely that in the midst of their persecution, these Hebrew Christians were tempted to slide back into Judaism. You want me to recant on my faith? People are dying. They're being martyred. You want me to slide back to something else? That temptation was probably very great. And the author of Hebrews says, don't go back to something lesser. 
Don't go back to the old covenant that Moses mediated. Don't go back to following the law. Yes, Moses was faithful, but he pointed to something greater, and that greater thing is Jesus. No matter how hard life gets, don't slide back into something lesser than Jesus Christ. That's the encouragement, and the same would be true for us today. In the middle of your temptation, in the middle of your suffering, when life is difficult, When you're tempted, literally, in your own mind and in your own heart, you think, you know what, maybe I just should walk away from this whole Jesus and Christianity thing. The author of Hebrews would stand before you and plead, don't go back to something lesser. Maybe at a previous point in your life, you built relationships up to be the ultimate thing that was ultimately going to make you happy and make you feel complete and fulfilled. And now you've come to Jesus, but things are hard and you're tempted to slide back. Don't go back to something lesser. That lesser thing might be substances. It might be money. It might be images on a screen. It could be your career and throwing yourself into work. And the pleading would be the exact same. Jesus is greater than all of those things. Don't go back. Don't slide back. Resist the temptation to do that. How do I know that's the implication here? Well, I know it because of the two exhortations that we get in this text. The first one is in verse 1. The, last, the second one is in verse 6. They bookend the paragraph. Therefore, holy brothers and sisters who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus. Consider Jesus. What's the author of Hebrews' application to the supremacy of Jesus Christ as God himself and yet also as man who suffered on our behalf? Think about Jesus. It's not rocket science. What is his encouragement to this church that's facing intense persecution and feeling like maybe they should punt the faith altogether? Consider Jesus. Now that requires something. It requires that we consider Jesus with truth. If we're going to think about Jesus and consider Him, we have to do it according to the truth of who He is. He's not who we want Him to be. He's not who we imagine Him to be. Jesus is who He is. And He's been described for us in Scripture. It does us no good to think about a false picture of Jesus Christ. Hebrews alone has told us so much of what He's like. He's the radiance of God's glory, the expression of God's character. He's the creator, sustainer, inheritor of all things. He atoned for our sins, mediating our relationship with God. He's seated at the right hand of God, interceding for us. He's greater than the angels. He was truly human. He has flesh and blood in common with us. He suffered. He hurt. He's merciful. He's faithful. He died on our behalf. That's the truth of who Jesus is. If we're going to consider him, we need to consider him rightly. The truth of Scripture reveals more for us to consider about Jesus than a lifetime of thought could ever fully comprehend. And so if we're going to consider Jesus, we need to go to the truth of who Jesus is. We also need to consider Jesus with time. The unfortunate reality is that many who profess Christ make no actual time for Him. They claim to have a relationship with Jesus, and yet that gets no actual expression in their life. If we're going to consider Jesus, we need to make time for it. We need to set it as a priority. We need to fight back against what would be sort of the suburban American cultural idea that you can 
profess faith in Jesus Christ, and then slide him into some dusty, dark closet somewhere and just hope to open it up and have him be there when you stand before the Lord in judgment. We need to get some stillness and quiet in our life wherein we can consider Jesus. Now, I understand that at different points in life, this might look very different. Some of you have young children and trying to carve out like 45 minutes to sit on the back deck with a cup of coffee and the Bible open, birds chirping, wind rustling softly through the trees while you ponder the deep things of Jesus Christ. You're, that is, what are you, I don't even remember that time, Tim. I understand that. And in that season of life, considering Jesus needs to probably get very creative. You might need to get a Bible app on your phone that will read out loud to you so that on the way to drop your kids off at school or at sports practice or to pick them up, you can soak in Scripture that way. The only time you say, honestly, Tim, I have to myself is when I go to the bathroom. Parents, you probably understand. That bathroom needs to become the prayer closet then. All right? That's your spot. There's your chance. Stretch out the bathroom break as long as you possibly can and consider Jesus there. If we're being honest, most of us would have to say that we're not maximizing or taking full advantage out of every minute of the 24-hour day that we're given. I'm not advocating for you to ditch sleep. I'm not advocating for you to skip work or something. I'm simply saying maybe you cancel the Netflix subscription. Students, maybe you do away with the video game. Consider Jesus. Find the time to do it. You might have a 45-minute commute to work every morning in which you listen to podcasts or something like that. Scrap the podcasts if that's the time you have available. Be creative about it. But it's going to take time, and it's also going to require some tenacity. The verb, therefore, consider Jesus, means to do so continually. It's not a one-time act. It's not even a a once-a-day act. As followers of Jesus, our thoughts are to be consumed by Him. Don't allow the various seasons of life to deter you. Give the best of your thoughts and the highest of your love to Jesus, no matter what your season or circumstance might be. Don't buy the lie that your heart and soul can be satisfied with a one-time fleeting thought about the greatness of Jesus that then you tuck away and move on with the rest of your life from. That's simply not true. Be tenacious continuous in your consideration of Jesus. Let's, let's level with one another, all right? I'm probably never going to be the best preacher in the world. You'll find better sermons online somewhere. I'm probably never going to be the best leader in the world. You can find better tips from that in a podcast somewhere. I'm never going to be the pastor who's really great at standing up in front of you and opening up the Bible and giving you seven points of wonderful application that are going to radically transform your life. But I will go to my grave pleading with you to consider Jesus. Pleading with you. You come to this church for 10 weeks or you come to this church for 10 years, I hope you walk away with that message and maybe nothing else. 
that when things are going really well in life, you consider Jesus and praise him and be grateful to him because it's not anything that you've done. It's what he's done on your behalf. When things are going really crummy in life, you think about Jesus and be grateful that he's merciful, that he knows what you're going through, that he sees you and he hears you and he's moving toward you. When the kids are being absolutely rotten, you stop. Well, don't stop. Do what you need to do with the child. But think about Jesus. And consider the fact that when we are absolutely rotten, he hangs in there patiently with us. When your spouse does that thing for the thousandth time that they know with absolute certainty totally annoys you, you think about Jesus and consider the fact that he has never once become tired of his bride, the church. You see a beautiful sunset and it catches your attention. Think about Jesus who created and sustains that sunset and whose radiance so far outshines it that one day the most beautiful sunset will pale in comparison to the beauty of His face. You're in the middle of temptation. Think about Jesus, who resisted temptation to the point of suffering, who never sinned and thus by His death and resurrection has made us holy and commands that we walk in holiness alongside Him. Consider Jesus. Following Christ does not need to be a difficult thing. Just think about Jesus. And then at the end of this passage, we get the second exhortation. We are that house if we hold to our confidence in the hope in which we boast. We need to continue in Jesus. Our greatest safeguard from slipping away from Jesus is to continually consider Him. The first leads to the second. We talk about uh, here at LCF building devoted followers of Jesus Christ who are gospel-centered. To be gospel-centered is to consider Jesus in all things. That is how we continue in Him. The first leads to the second. You get that before your heart at all times, then there's no fear in not continuing in Christ. And once you're in that place, you can help others do the same. We talk about discipleship relationships here. You might be thinking to yourself, yeah, discipling someone sounds great, or being discipled sounds great, but I just don't understand what we're supposed to do in that whole thing. If you're discipling someone, just point them to Jesus. That's it. Help them consider Jesus at all times. They come to you with some sort of life struggle. Your knee-jerk reaction as a discipler ought to be, well, Let's consider Jesus together. That's going to force you into scripture. It's going to force you into prayer. It's going to turn their eyes back to where their focus ought to be, and it will help them continue in Christ all of their life. You're a parent. Help your children consider Jesus. Unfold for them in words that their three-year-old, four-year-old, 10-year-old, 12-year-old, 15-year-old, 25-year-old brain can understand about who Jesus is, why he's so glorious. Like the book of Deuteronomy says, talk about Jesus at home, on the road, while you sit, while you stand, as you're coming, as you're going. Unfold for them the beauty of who Jesus Christ is. Help them learn to consider Jesus. That's not a guarantee that If you do that faithfully, it means that your children are never going to stray from Jesus or that they will absolutely be saved. But I can guarantee you 
that if you do that kind of work in the life of your children, the odds of them coming to know and to cherish Christ are higher than if you don't do any of that work. Help them consider Jesus, which will help them continue in Jesus. Holy brothers and sisters, we are in this together who share a heavenly calling. And that calling is glory. Consider Jesus because he's greater than all other things. And when you're tempted to think otherwise, don't slip back into something lesser and thereby you will continue in Jesus. Hebrews 3, 1 to 6. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. God, thank you for this morning, for your son. God, I pray that in all things at all times, we would see him as superior to everything. God, would he get the best of our thoughts and the highest of our love? Lord, I pray that you would show each and every one of us where it is in our daily lives and in our daily schedules we can make the time, get into the truth, be relentless in considering who Jesus is. God, I pray that as brothers and sisters in Christ, we would spur one another on to consider Him and to continue in Him and to be faithful to Him. God, I pray that above all other things in life, we would see Jesus as supreme and we would cling to that with all of who we are. Lord, by the power of your Holy Spirit at work in each and every one of us, would you increasingly make that so day by day, week by week, year by year, we pray in the matchless name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Have a great week.